he came to the diet basically because the church said the things that you are teaching, Martin Luther, um, are against uh, what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And so as he's standing there before these two authorities, he has on one side the church that has the power of excommunication, right? The power to uh, uh, remove him from God's church and, in fact, to remove him from the faith. On the other side, he has the empire, which holds the power of execution. And Luther is told, if you want to save your life and your soul, in fact, you need only say one word, revaco, which means I recant. I revoke everything I've said, everything I have taught. Instead, Luther faced the emperor and said these words. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, for I do not trust in either pope or council since they have so often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand I can do no other. God help me. So in my opinion, that moment stands as one of the single greatest moments of courage in the history of mankind, certainly of Western civilization and and of the Christian church's history. And it was in defense of one of the most central aspects of our God-ordained nature, as morally accountable and volitional beings. And that is our freedom of conscience and our freedom of religion. So here's the deal. Freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, even though we, we you might have learned this in, in a high school or college history class, um, those are not Enlightenment-era secular concessions that were given to, to the Western world. All right. Again, if you read sort of secular history books, what you'll often um, find the story sold to you is that the, the 16th and 17th century, the 15 and 1600s were these centuries of, of violence and religious bigotry, of Christian infighting all throughout Europe. Um, and, and while that is certainly true in, in a lot of senses, it, it was a terribly violent and cruel time. Certainly it seems unfair also to lay all of that on religion because there were political and ethnic divisions um, all over the place too. And so it's a little misleading to blame all of the violence of the 15 and 1600s on, on religion. But again, the story will often say something to the effect of, and then the secular philosophers stepped in, the enlightenment philosophers. And then they said, Hey, can't we all just get along? Um, and, and can't we all just um, agree that everybody can believe whatever they want to, and we can all live in peace and, and the secular philosophers save the day. Except what oftentimes is forgotten or, or completely ignored is, is to tell you that those secular philosophers um, were standing on the shoulders of Christian theologians. Christian theologians who had preached freedom of conscience, conscience, freedom of religion since the earliest years of the church. And even if some of the factions of the church at the time in the midst of all these political and national struggles had forgotten those values, it was still on those moral and philosophical principles that the Enlightenment philosophers were, were, were writing these things. So again, from the earliest years, when Christianity was a minority religion, 
in a very pluralistic Roman Empire kind of context. It was teaching that religious belief is a matter of personal conviction, that it cannot and should not be coerced, and that that religious freedom extends not just to the spaces of our own hearts and heads, but to the free external practice of those religions as we see fit. So again, you see that in the culture a lot of times even now. People will say, you're certainly welcome to believe whatever you want to about whatever you want to in here and in here. But you can't have it play out in public. And we would say, wrong. That is not uh, the way God has designed us. Um, that we should be able to freely not only believe, but freely worship as we see fit. It's part of the way God has designed us. And so what I want to do is in light of sort of that anniversary of, of this great stand for Christian conscience, I want to talk about that very idea in this, in this, um, in this sermon, because I think the case is this, the greatest external threat to the church. We certainly have plenty of internal threats, but the greatest external threat to the church is the imposition and overreach of the state into matters of faith and and religious practice. So we have obviously seen some of those things start to play out with the, the COVID pandemic. So over the last year, there have been all kinds of situations. You've seen court cases about it. You've seen things all over the country of, of situations where churches are singled out for restrictions when liquor stores and casinos and entertainment venues are not. And, and, and in many cases, it was determined specifically because they were churches, all right? It was not an accidental situation where churches were treated more harshly, but local government officials were intentionally targeting churches um, for that stricter treatment. Many of you are probably familiar with the Canadian pastor, James Coates, um, who over recent weeks um, has kind of been in the news some. Uh, Coates' church, the community they, they were lived, they lived in, there was a restrictive order that said you cannot gather in, in certain numbers. And he said, as a function of our religious freedom and our, and our freedom of, of, of gathering together um, in terms of our religious worship, we're going to gather anyway. Coates was arrested and put in jail for 35 days on charges that were not punishable by jail time. Then, after releasing him, instead of saying, and your hearing is later down the road, they erected a fence around his church, blocked the entry with police vehicles, and stationed armed guards to keep people from coming into the building. And, and when I read that story, I thought to myself, you know what? Evangelicals are awful at PR, okay? We're terrible at optics, and I was like, but man, that takes the cake. Like, the, can you imagine the picture of, of the state coming in and putting up fences and armed guards around a church building? Like, it feels, it feels like something you would see in a dystopian novel. Um, but that was exactly what they did. And so the reality is, is there have been a lot of uh, government overreach kind of issues that have been made manifest because of the COVID pandemic. But I don't think that that is the main area that we are going to have a problem with. God willing... In, in, in the near future, the COVID pandemic will be basically over. The greater threat, I think, remains the demands of the sexual revolution. That will be the main uh, point of contention. Christianity and sexual revolution have been on a collision course for, for decades. They are two trains barreling down a track at one another. 
certainly since the 60s. Honestly, probably when we think about the way that the revolution of birth control and stuff, the 50s, and honestly, the, the, the moral underpinnings of our culture were changing even in the 40s, 30s, and, and 20s. And so it probably goes back at least that far. But the sexual revolution has been gaining steam, and, and it is playing itself out in any number of ways every single day in, in our culture, particularly with, with things like this, the, the, the current bill that is trying to be passed, the Equality Act, which, if, if you're not familiar with exactly how it works, it works the Equality Act, the main thing it does is it changes the definition of what sex means as relates to the Civil Rights um, Act of the 1960s. Okay, so what that means is that from now on, when the when the uh, when the uh, uh, the law says you cannot discriminate according based on sex, that includes or will include if this passes sexual orientation and gender identity. And moreover, and probably more ominous for us as Christians, it also explicitly says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 which had been used to give religious entities an exemption, um, religious institutions, schools, churches, um, uh, nonprofits, and things like that. that. That Religious Freedom Restoration Act had been used to give us an exemption in those situations, to say, well, we, we can't um, hire in the same ways uh, that another in- organization might because of our tightly held religious convictions. But the new Equality Act says that cannot be used as an exemption any longer. It's passed in the House. It is still up for grabs in the Senate. We'll see what happens. But it at least is a it is a, a, a symbol of, of the direction that our culture is going. Andrew Walker, who is an ethicist and, and professor at Southern Seminary, says this about the bill. The bill represents the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America. Given that it touches areas of education, public accommodation, employment, federal funding, its sweeping effects on religious liberty, free speech, and freedom of conscience would be both historic and also chilling. So here's the question for for our, our time today. What are we to do about this? How are we to respond to these issues? So that's a long discussion, okay? Um, especially when we get into talking about specific policies, situations. Um, um, there's no way that we can adequately discuss this topic in, in a, a 30 or 45 minute sermon. But we can say some general things about the way that the Bible would teach us to respond to these things, I think. The first thing should be is that it should be our instinct always to go to God in prayer about them. To believe that we can go to God and ask him for his, his um, help and influence on these situations and that we can believe that God cares and listens um, and has a desire to do things. We can pray for revival. We can pray that people's hearts would be changed. So obviously it should be our first instinct to go to God in prayer about them, which again, we've talked about in recent weeks. I think we miss that. Um, I heard a pastor say recently, he said, after a year like COVID, man, if this had happened in any other year of, of American history, there would have been a different call to prayer in, in the culture, in the churches and everything. And yet in, in many cases, those things seem to, to, to sort of fall flat um, in, in our current cultural situation. So we get, we need to go to the Lord in prayer, but, but also it should be our instinct to go to the scriptures. 
And fortunately for us, the, the scriptures have any number of stories about specific instances where the state was imposing on the religious beliefs of its citizens. And so we can think of a lot of stories. Uh, the Hebrew midwives who had been tasked with killing the baby boys in, in Pharaoh's Egypt. Or Jeremiah's treasonous sermons when he was preaching in the face of, of the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians. Basically telling the people what was actually going to happen, which was seen as treason. We could talk about Daniel's refusal to eat from the king's table. We could talk about Paul's various interactions with, with local officials as he went on his missionary journeys through the Mediterranean and his eventual appeal to Caesar. But instead, even though there's those examples and many more that we can look to, today we're going to look at a story that is probably, I think, the best place to go to, and that is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So again, if you're not there already, turn to Daniel chapter 3. And what we're going to do is we're going to do kind of, again, an overview. There's no way we can dig in into the minutia of things, but we're going to do an overview about some principles that we can glean from this story about how we can frame a response to these things. So if you remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, the the king of Babylon, the the most powerful empire uh, in in the world at the time, had set up a golden idol, this huge, massive golden idol on the plain of Dura, the Bible says. And he decrees in chapter five, verse five of chapter three, that all people are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. We're told in verse 8 that at that time, certain Chaldeans, so Chaldea is is essentially the area kind of between the Tigris and the Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. And so it's basically where Babylon is. You You could think of it when the Chaldeans are saying these things. These are the core, central, hardcore kind of Babylonian people. At the time, certain Chaldeans came forward maliciously accusing the Jews. And we see the content of that accusation starting in verse 12. And so we're going to read verse 12 down through verse 28. It's a long section. There's a lot of repetition in it. I'm going to abbreviate a few places and stuff like that. But we're going to kind of read that whole section to remind ourselves of the story. There are certain Jews, they say, these these Chaldeans, there are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve our, your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, tunics, hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took them up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he said to them, but I see four bound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then they came out from the fire, and the satraps and prefects and governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serving the worship, serve, rather than to serve and worship any God except their own God. All right, so what can we glean from that passage? in terms of general principles that will help us navigate the current issues that we find ourselves in. I want to give you five sort of general principles. And the first one maybe should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. The first thing is that we, in these situations, we need to continue to do good and we need to refuse to do what is evil. All right? We need to continue to do what is good and we need to refuse to do what is evil. So as we've talked about before, what worries me in our response in the culture wars is that oftentimes we look to these issues with with either fear or hatred, neither of which are Christian responses. But look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. I I think maybe the best way to say it is they respond with calm resolve. Be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's it. They don't yell. They don't attack. They don't slander. They don't curse. They don't fight. They don't try to storm the capital or raise up an army or try to to kill anybody or overthrow the king. They just say, we're not going to do that. I cannot. I will not worship the image that you have set up. We cannot cave to the pressure if that entails us doing something that is evil, something that is sinful. And in fact, the case is is that I think that we we find ourselves put in a position where we cannot even compromise. It is dangerous for us to compromise. The promise of compromise is always that if you'll just give an inch, we promise we won't ask anything else of you. But here's the deal, and we all know this, it never, ever works that way. Because we give an inch, 
And then they say, well, just one more inch. And then one more foot. And then one more yard. There's always more that is asked because it's a tactic. Compromise is a, is a lie. It's a tactic to gain ground. Little compromises have a way of ending up becoming big compromises. And really, I think the deal is, is at the end of the day, every day, we should recognize that really all this is about is our allegiance. Who are you worried about offending? Whose honor are you most important, uh, is, is it most important for you to hold up? Whom do you love most? Because that will dictate all of the answers to these questions. Who am I responsible to most? Because the reality is this, and this is the second thing that we see from this passage. We need to do good, continue to do good, and refuse to do evil. But when we stand our ground on those things, we have to recognize the fact that we should expect suffering to come. We should expect that. And we should even rejoice when it comes. The reality is, is the state always and everywhere thinks it is the boss of your life. It thinks you belong to it and that you are there to serve its purposes. It is always angry when you tell it, no, you don't have any business in certain areas of my life. You don't have any authority in certain areas of my life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that there would be consequences for refusing the king. In fact, the king had told them that there were consequences, correct? He had said, here's what will happen if you don't bow down. You will be thrown into this fiery furnace. That's the deal. And the reality is, is that we know that there will be consequences in our own culture. We are living in a culture that, again, I say this over and over again, and I don't mean it to sound harsh, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean it to sound like overblown, but we do not care about equality in our culture. We don't care about tolerance in our culture, no matter how many people put that sticker on the back of their bumper, okay? Nobody's interested in those things. What our culture is interested in is dominance and vengeance. It wants power, and it wants you to be punished for not agreeing with them. That's what the world is, is the values of the world that we live in. That's why cancel culture is a thing. If everybody was about tolerance in our country, we wouldn't have cancel culture. It wouldn't exist. People wouldn't be yelling people down and getting people fired and shutting people's lives down and stuff like that. It wouldn't happen because we would just say, oh, cool. He believes something different than me. Good on you, buddy. Just go do whatever you want to. We don't care about those things. Speaking the truth and obeying God is going to cost you something eventually. It's going to cost you friends, opportunity, influences, Promotions, livelihoods may one day cost us our daily freedoms, may one day even cost us our own lives. I hope not, but it could. And that's not chicken little, the sky is falling kind of talk. All right. This is not me reading the political cultural winds and making a prediction. What I'm telling you is what the Bible says is the consequence of Christian belief. What Jesus says is the consequence. King Nebuchadnezzar told us what the consequence was of not following him. Jesus has told us what the consequence is of us following Christ. And that is, there is going to be suffering. And if you have not experienced it yet, then we have been blessed in that way. God has been gracious and merciful to us in those things. But it is coming. 
And it's hard to embrace the fact, it's hard to embrace this reality, but the Bible repeatedly says that we should rejoice in that suffering. That we should be glad when it comes. Not glad in the, for the suffering in and of itself, but glad because of what God uses it for. Because we know that as we read the scriptures, if when we suffer for a, a righteous cause, when we suffer for Jesus Christ, we know that one, we are being counted worthy to suffer. You remember those stories in Acts where the, the, the disciples go out and they get whipped and beaten and arrested for, uh, for Christ. And then when they're released, they come home to the fellowship. And what are they doing? They're saying, we got to suffer for Jesus. We got to be whipped for Jesus. God has counted us worthy to suffer for him. Moreover, we know that God draws near to those who are suffering. He meets us in a special way when we suffer and we're going through those difficulties. Moreover, there is great reward for those who persevere through suffering. There are any number of reasons why we should rejoice when, when suffering comes to us because of, of, of following Christ and because of righteousness. And I know that's hard to say. It's easy to kind of get up here and be like, yeah, rejoice in suffering. I don't do that. I don't rejoice in suffering. I'm not happy for, for suffering when it comes. And yet the scriptures would say, there are certain kinds of suffering that we should be rejoicing in. And here's, here's another piece to that. When we expect suffering, we're not being fatalistic. You understand what I mean? When we say suffering is going to come, that is not us giving up. And that's the third principle that we see out of this passage. We believe that God will protect us. We expect God to answer our prayers on these issues. But even if he doesn't, we still are going to trust him. That's the third principle. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He can, he's powerful, he's mighty to those things, and he will, he desires to. But if not, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Expecting suffering and persecution makes some folks feel like we're just giving up, like we're saying, "Ah, oh, well, we should just, you know, you're you're caving, I mean, or you're or you're um, bowing down to the powers that be." We are not, though. This is not what it is. We're not resigning ourselves to death. We're not resigning ourselves to to loss. On the contrary, we expect God to answer our prayers. When we pray that God would bring revival, when we pray that God would change our culture, when we pray that God would change people's hearts, we expect that he is going to do that, that he's going to answer those prayers, that he is going to accomplish the good things that we hope for. And so expecting suffering is not throwing up our hands. It's just recognizing the fact that we trust God in whatever he plans on doing. God answered the prayers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were saved. They were rescued out of their situation. Martin Luther was rescued out of his situation. I don't know if you know the, the larger story there, but, but Martin Luther just kind of, he, he stood up and, and said these things before the, the, the king and the pope, and then he just sort of like, he just like bounced and, and snuck out of there and literally just sort of went out, and they, they didn't know what to do exactly, and then these other guys kidnapped him, but they were good guys trying to help him, and it was this weird story. But anyway, Martin Luther ended up dying a middle-aged man of natural causes, all right? God protected and preserved Martin Luther. But we also know he didn't do that with every Protestant reformer, that there were many men who stood, and women who stood for the gospel and were executed for it, who were caught and tortured and, and killed. 
who rotted away in prison. And so all this is just to say, while we believe that God answers our prayers, we also recognize that we may be part of a larger plan that God has for a time and a place and a people. And we cannot presume on his will in those ways. So just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we can believe he can and will save us, that he will justify our cause, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to cave. We're still going to continue to live in a way that honors God and walks in holiness and obedience to him. So that third point is kind of to say this. We are assured that in life or death, that in success or in suffering, God will be with us. And actually, that's exactly what we find in that next section. The fourth point is this. Jesus will always be with you, even in the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't we cast three guys into the fire? Yep, that's right, king. But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Three men are thrown in. Four men are down there standing around walking freely unharmed. So there's a little bit of disagreement when you look at Bible commentaries and stuff like that about who this is, what it is that is in the flames uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it an angel? Is it, is it, is it the, the, the person that we would identify as the angel of the Lord in the scriptures? Um, I think the case is, is that this is a Christophany. A Christophany is a, a pre-incarnate time when Jesus shows up. Okay? So Jesus is born in a manger uh, at the beginning of the New Testament. He is incarnate. He takes on flesh. But there are various places in the Old Testament where it seems to be the case that, that Jesus shows up in a physical form. And I think this is one of those cases. And so what we notice is that it's in times of trial and suffering that Jesus draws particularly close to his people. So even when suffering is inevitable, even when the earthly temporal defeat is God's will for his people, we know that Christ is with us even then. And we can draw peace and comfort and strength from the fact that Jesus will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, even to the end of the age. That's the promise that he makes his disciples right after his resurrection, right? I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. We are certainly still within that time. We are The end of the age has not happened yet. Jesus Christ is still with us in those difficulties. And so trial, hardship, is, is, is not a time for us to take up the weapons of the world, but to lean into Jesus as our source of care and comfort. And finally, the last thing that we can glean from this passage, or at least a last thing that we can glean, is the reality that our faithfulness will lead to God's glory. If we are faithful, God will be seen as glorious in the world. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond at the end of the passage? After seeing what these men have done, after seeing God's provision for them, what does he do? He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. Okay, think about that for a second. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a god, right? He thought he was a deified man. 
And what is he saying in this situation? He's saying, you three guys, awesome job not listening to me. Way to go. You guys did what was right because your God is greater than me. Your God is all, he is the most high God who set aside the king's commands, who yielded up their own bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Right? Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the sacrifice, recognizes the courage, recognizes the commitment, and he honors God and glorifies God because of that. And so again, I, we're not being fatalistic when we say, hey, you may have to suffer for your faith one day. And you think, oh man, like that means I'm going to go through this hardship and, and, and die in a hole somewhere, you know, or whatever. And the reality is, I mean, that's not the case necessarily. It could be, right? We can't, we can't make any promises. But the reality is, is that oftentimes our suffering leads to God being glorified as being seen for who he really is. The reason why we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today is not because they caved to the king's commands, right? We don't tell stories about the people who compromised and made deals to not be killed. The reason why we're talking about Martin Luther 500 years later is not because he decided to cave on all his beliefs so that he could save his own skin and keep his mouth shut. We're not talking about him for those. We're talking about it still because they stuck to their guns. They stuck to their convictions. And because of that, God was seen as glorious. God was lifted up. God was exalted. God was presented as worthy because of their faithfulness. Now, maybe we get to the end of this thing and you kind of say, cool, Ash. But I don't think things are that bad. I think you're probably kind of, there's a little bit of saber rattling, a little bit of skies falling, probably just going to get people all worked up. And man, the last thing we need after the year that we've had culturally and socially and politically is to get people worked up. Everybody just needs to chill out a little bit, right? Well, there's there's a saying that you've heard me say before. It's a saying in boxing. And the reason why we're talking about these things, and the saying goes something like this. Everybody's got a plan until they get hit. Okay, and, and the reason why I say that here is because what we all do is we think we know Jesus Christ. We think we're pretty solid in our faith. We understand that we're supposed to love people and be kind and gracious, winsome. We have all these ideas in our heads, right? And then somebody punches us in the mouth. And in that moment, what do you do? You put your dukes up most of the time. If you're like me, your first response is not, how has Jesus called me to live in the midst of suffering? Right? My first response is usually, if you want to go, we'll go. Okay? And, and we'll all go down with this thing. Okay? I'll burn this place to the ground before we're finished. Okay? The reason why it's important to talk about this stuff is because it's going to come. It's going to happen. There are going to be people in this room who lose their jobs because of the stands they take. There are going to be people who don't get jobs because of the stands they take. There are going to be people who um, lose family members and, and other relationships because of the stands they take on things. That's going to happen. And when it does happen, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, I'm ready, let's go. Or are you going to say, no, I don't want to respond with the weapons of the world. I don't want to respond the way the world teaches me to respond to conflict. I don't want to respond with fear. 
I want to respond with faithfulness. I don't want to respond with hatred. I want to respond with holiness in these things. And I don't want to respond with compromise. I want to respond with conviction. That's why we talk about this. That's why we talk about it over and over again. We talk about these things because we want to be ready when the day comes. And by God's grace, we will be if these things come to fruition. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, it is a uh, it is a crazy world right now. The things that I think uh, we could have assumed a generation ago, things that would have been obvious truths for the entire world, regardless of culture, religion, worldview, anywhere in the world you have gone, these things would have been obvious. And now it seems as though they are all up for grabs. That the moorings of of reality have been loosened for so many people and, and, and there's no explanation for it. God, like things have changed so quickly and that change when things happen that fast, God, just as we're saying, we, we are oftentimes we respond in ways that we shouldn't respond. We respond in sort of a fight or flight kind of mechanism in our own lives. God, we know that that's not what you have called us to. You have not called us um, to fight per se, You've certainly not called us to flee, but you have called us to stand. God, to convictionally stand for what we believe. God, to tell the world about the truth of of who you are, of, of who your son is, of what you have for the world, the way that you have designed them, the way that you have always intended for us to live our lives. God, that we are supposed to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that includes telling people about the truth of, of, of what is good and right and, and natural and normal in the way you've designed us. God, help us to be those people that, that do not act out of fear and hatred, but act out of love, act out of care and concern for others around us. But in everything, God, let us lean into Jesus Christ, trusting that he is our source of comfort and of strength and that he will be with us in all things. Father, help us to live those lives. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Thank you.
Amen. Good to see you tonight. Glad you were here. Um, glad I got to see you. Um, glad we could share in this passage together. Um, we'll be back in Luke um, next week, continuing on in our um, study of the Lord's Prayer, or finish the Lord's Prayer, but, but still as, as, as Luke is commenting on the Lord's Prayer, or as Jesus is commenting on the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll look forward to getting back into Luke. Um, but thank you guys. Um, here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.